I was talking to a professional dance instructor who, uh, after the lecture on uh, repent, believe, fight from Numbers 21, and I did the 2A, 2B, believe, affirmation, affirm your justified standing, your adopted status, your union with Christ, your life is hidden with Christ and God, and then 2B, appropriate, uh, which is looking to Christ, the present value or power of the blood to transform you supernaturally at the place of repentance. He says, Bob, there's, there's actually a pause in the waltz between uh, the second and third steps. So, actually, it is if, if someone who's a professional waltzer, there really is a, a 2A and a 2B. So, we're going to cover… Um, repentance at a deeper level, and we're going to cover as well the first element of the believe step, which is affirming your standing and status. But before I do that, I want to review the principle that God is always at work around us all the time. Your Father is always pursuing your heart all the time, and He is orchestrating circumstances to draw us to Himself. You maybe have heard the story of uh, uh, the little boy that had a, a prized possession. It was a gift he'd been given for his birthday, and it was a toy boat. And the only uh, rule he had from his dad was that he could only play with the toy boat uh, in the pond while his dad was with him. And he wasn't trying to give his son less fun. He just wanted to be there in case the boat got too far away and the son would be tempted to go in the water and could possibly drown. And so one day, of course, the boy disobeyed, and he took the boat, and he played in the pond, and sure enough, it got too far away, and he started wading in after it. Thankfully, the father saw the son, and he ran down to the son, and he initially said, son, I told you, you cannot go in the water without me. You cannot play with this boat. It's for your protection. And then the father started picking up rocks and throwing them. And the little boy started crying, Father, 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 why are you trying to destroy my boat? I'm so sorry. And the father <laughs> knelt down and said, Son, I'm not trying to destroy your boat. I'm throwing the rocks over your boat to create waves to bring it back to you. You may feel like the Father's throwing rocks at you. He's not. He's throwing rocks that create waves in our lives, but His only desire is to draw us closer to Him, to bring us back to Him. So those circumstances and situations and relationships and even the Word of God that's exposing sin in your life, it's not the Father trying to destroy you. He's actually pursuing you. And as He exposes us, it creates the waltz music on the various dance floors of life that lead to supernatural transformation. Uh, write down this verse, Psalm 23, verse 6. You all know Psalm 23 right? The Lord is my shepherd. Do you remember what verse 6 says? Surely goodness and mercy or loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Beautiful, right? Except for the Hebrew is very much more graphic. Surely goodness and, and loving kindness, those two word studies would be worth a Bible study in itself. The word pursue is hunt. It's hound. God in His loving kindness and goodness will hound me all the days of my life, will hunt me 
See, we think of hunt in bad senses or hound in bad senses, but the Hebrew word literally means, like C.S. Lewis said, the hound of heaven pursues us. God is always pursuing us through every circumstance, event, and situation in our lives. And it exposes sin so that we would despair, not of life in general, but we would despair of our own capacities to change ourselves. There are way too many people in the church that feel much too self-confident and self-reliant and self-sufficient. And let me tell you something, men and women, that leads to powerlessness in the Christian life. Self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-confidence in the Christian life is death. You can't be filled with the power of self and the power of the Spirit at the same time. We are either consciously dependent upon Christ and filled with the power of Spirit as we look to Christ in faith, or are we are unconsciously self-reliant. I'll say that again. At any particular moment, we are either consciously, desperately dependent upon Christ and looking to Christ like the Israelites looked at the bronze servant, or we are unconsciously self-reliant. So if you're not consciously looking to Christ in utter dependence, you are unconsciously self-reliant. We really need to keep that in mind. So God, in His love, sends circumstances, relationships, and situations that remind us of the venom of sin. God and say, we have sinned. So now, let's look at repentance in a little bit more depth. The passage that uh, Dan read uh, was 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11, and Paul talks about repentance. Well, let me say, first of all, repentance is always first. The first step of supernatural transformation is repentance. It's the first word of the gospel, Mark 1, 15. Jesus says, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The Greek is very graphic there. It's the present tense. Keep on continually repenting. See, I used to think that repentance was something that bad Christians did. No. Repentance is the normal Christian life. And if more believers were taught that, there'd be a lot less despairing and discouraged Christians out there. That's why the waltz can be so transformational. Oh, repentance is something I'm supposed to be engaged in all the time, like every day, like multiple times throughout the day? Yes. Again, if I were to take you out to coffee or tea and I were to ask you, tell me what you're repenting of these days. If you have no answer, then I can tell you, you are not growing in Christ. You, you cannot grow in the gospel. You cannot grow in Christ unless you're acknowledging sin like the Israelites did. We have sinned. Now, how do we engage in repentance? Well, the Word of God, sermons. That's why it's so important to place yourself under the authority of a local church. The preached word on the Lord's Day is different than even you reading the word on your own. Do you all realize that? God has anointed the preaching of the word even above your own personal devotional life. Jesus Christ is present uniquely when the church gathers. That's why coming out of COVID, we have got to help the people of God get back into the church of God. 
you're not even going to experience the Spirit the same way, streaming, as you are. I promise you, Mark did not tell me to say this. He did not. But we're, we're dealing with the same issues at Oak Mountain. So we, we need to be exposed to the Word of God. Now, your personal devotional life, that's also one of the ways God plays waltz music as you, as you read Scripture. Let me ask you, when you read Scripture, are you reading it as an instruction manual? Or are you reading it as fine surgery? See, God uses the Word to expose us to create our need for repentance because repentance is the first step to transformation. What sparked that we talked, we just did, some of us did just a tour of, basically it was a Reformation tour. What sparked the Reformation? The 95 Theses by Luther on the door of Wittenberg. Okay, Luther had no intentions of starting a brand new church. The Reformation was actually his attempt to reform the Catholic Church to pull it back from some of its mistakes and errors. You know what the first thesis was? Luther's first thesis was this. When Jesus Christ called men and women to repent, He was setting the course for the entire Christian life. As a new believer, I wasn't taught that. And so I looked around, and I didn't hear people talking about repentance. Well, I heard about people talking about repentance when it came to conversion. So I, whether I was taught it or whether I just caught it, I quickly embraced the position that growing Christians just don't sin that much. And I knew in my own life, and I, again, I wasn't like doing all these crazy sinful things. I just knew I wasn't loving God perfectly 24-7, and I wasn't loving my neighbor as myself 24-7. So I knew I was a sinner. So repentance comes first. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. In James 4, where it says God opposed the proud, gives grace to the humble, the, the phrase just before that is, but He gives more grace. That's the Christian life. That's the supernatural Christian life. We receive more grace by saying in numbers with the people of God, we have sinned, and then that look to faith in Christ releases and activates more grace, supernatural grace from heaven. So we actually enter into the waltz where we receive more grace through repentance. Then you'll see also the next thing is we repent increasingly as we grow in Christ. Do you hear me? You don't repent less as you're growing in Christ. You repent more. You think, well, how can that be true? Don't we get more holy? Of course we do. Outwardly, people see more godliness. Inwardly, we're more aware of sin the more we grow. How can that be? Well, when I was first convert converted, I didn't even own a Bible. Well, then I started reading the Bible. I couldn't put it down. I shared that with you. Well, the more I know the Word of God, the more the Word of God exposes me, right? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Pierces the soul. So, the more I know the Word, the more the Word exposes me. So, if I'm mature in Christ… That means I know the Bible really well, which means there's all kinds of call to repentance as I know God's Word in my heart. So the more you know God, the more you're repenting, not less. The Apostle Paul is an incredible study of increasing repentance with maturity. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, I am the least of the apostles. Okay, that's fairly humble. He's an apostle, but he's the least of the apostles. Then he writes Ephesians, which is actually later than 1 Corinthians. And in Ephesians, he doesn't say I'm the least of the apostles. He says I'm the least of God's people. That's interesting. He's more mature. Sometimes we forget, like, Paul was a sinner just like we are. 
Paul had to mature in Christ too. 1 Corinthians, I'm the least of the apostles. Ephesians, I'm the least of God's people. And then at the end of his life in 1 Timothy, what does he write? I am the chief among all sinners. Folks, he's, he's not being falsely humble there. Paul's not speaking in a hyperbole. The more he knew Christ, the more he saw his sinfulness the more he was repenting, and therefore the more he was experiencing the supernatural Christian life. See, if, and this is where grace is so important. If you're living under performance, then by definition you believe that God's love for you, God's delight in you, and God's favor upon you is directly dependent upon your performance of obedience to His Word. That's the paradigm. Well, if that's your paradigm, you are going to have an aversion of being exposed. Because to be exposed in your paradigm, by definition, means that you're admitting and acknowledging you have forfeited God's favor, and you have forfeited God's blessing. That's the paradigm you're living in. So you're going to be filled with defensiveness. By the way, you want a great barometer as to whether you're living in the gospel? How defensive would people say you are? See, defensiveness is a sure sign of somebody that's not fully boasting in the gospel. How quick are you to excuse make? How quick are you to to not just defend yourself, but to make excuses for yourself. Again, evidence of not resting in the gospel of grace. How quick are you to blame shift? Which, by the way, all of these happened in Genesis 3. Right? Adam, what have you done? The woman you gave me. Right? First thing he did was blame shift. And then Eve, what have you done? Well, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Excuse making. Blame shifting, excuse making. Of course, what's the first thing Adam did? He hid. See, if, if we're not resting in the gospel of grace, then we are not going to want to be exposed. It's only, it's almost like grace is spiritual novocaine that enables God to cut the cancer. I had skin cancer on my chest, and I had a friend who did the surgery, and he started cutting, and I wasn't numb yet. So he said, oh, Bob, I'm so sorry. He put more in. And, uh, and then, you know, I felt this pressure. I said, okay, it's fine. And he started cutting. I said, ow! I felt that! He said, you really can feel that. I said, no kidding. I said, but wait a minute. I felt just pressure a moment ago. He said, yeah. He said, I was just using my finger because I thought maybe you were experiencing phantom pain. I said, you turkey. He said, you don't take Novocaine very well. I said, well, I don't know what it is, but don't you cuddle me again until I'm numb. And he shot some other stuff in there, and he finally was able to cut. If you're not resting in grace, being exposed as a sinner is too painful. And you will deny, blame shift, excuse make. It's only as we're resting in grace that we're open to seeing our sin. And the more we grow in Christ, the more sin we'll see, because the more of the Word of God will expose us. The closer you get to the light, the more dirt you see. The closer you get to God, the more sin you have to see. Does it, am I making sense? Okay? The, the more you're growing in Christ, the more you're going to be repenting. Okay, then secondly, I want you to repent wholeheartedly. Now, this is so important. We've talked, several of us have talked that, can I just remind all of us, God is not a brain on a stick. I think we tend to think that God is like this Spock in the sky. Of course, do you know who Spock is? 
Star Trek, does that ring a bell to anybody here in Britain? Okay, so like God is like the ultra-logical God. Well, God's not illogical, but God is more than a brain on a stick, okay? You know you have four chambers of your heart? You have the right ventricle, left ventricle, uh, right atrium, left atrium. Uh, and if there's a blockage in any part, you have a heart attack. The spiritual heart, biblically speaking, has four chambers as well. It's our thoughts, our feelings, our longings or desires, and our choices. If you do a biblical study on the heart, you're going to see that every time. Thoughts, feelings, desires, choices. And if any one of those is blocked in any one of us, we have spiritual blockage. And I think in many of our evangelical churches, our Bible-believing churches, uh, we are blocked when it comes to our emotions and our longings. We don't talk about those much. And so when I talk about repenting wholeheartedly, I'm talking about not just repenting in my mind like the Israelites did, we have sinned. We grumbled. We shouldn't have grumbled. It's also repenting with our emotions. Let me give you an example. Um, I don't know what you all think of Braveheart. I know that some of it was historical. Some of it was, was some uh, artistic license. And I, I don't even know what you all think of the whole Scotland-England thing, but I'm going to use an illustration from Braveheart. Uh, and this is actually an inaccuracy, by the way, because uh, Robert the Bruce, who is a Scottish lord, uh, the movie actually has Robert the Bruce uh, doing something awful that historically actually is not accurate. But let me tell the story the way the movie tells it. Just know that at the end it's going to be inaccurate. But it's a great part of the story. So William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, is trying to get the British, uh, the Scottish lords, the landowners, to join the fight against the English crown because um, right now it's only the peasants that are with William Wallace. And so he has a meeting, and Robert the Bruce, who is uh, a Scottish lord, he says he's all in. Then there's a battle of Falkirk. At the Battle of Falkirk, the Scots are soundly defeated by the English. And William Wallace is so frustrated, and he sees uh, the king uh, with some um, of his escorts uh, leaving the battlefield because it's over. And William Wallace is so furious that he chases after, it takes his own life in his hand. And the king says to two of his uh, guards, go take care of William Wallace. And William Wallace uh, uh, kills one of them, and that leaves one other guard. And they joust, and they knock each other off their horses, and then it's William Wallace and this, this helmeted guard, uh, and they're fighting, and it's, you know, who knows who's going to win. And finally, William Wallace gets the upper hand, and he has a knife at the guard's throat. And he wants to find out who is. So he rips off the helmet, and it's Robert the Bruce. And Mel Gibson does such a phenomenal acting job here. You can see in Mel Gibson's face, who plays William Wallace, something in him just died. He can't believe that he's been betrayed. He takes the knife away from Robert the Bruce's neck. He throws it. And he falls back on the ground. And he's done. The English are coming back because they realize now if they have William Wallace. They can end the whole thing. And Robert the Bruce quickly, quickly gets him up on a horse and, and gets him to his men and, and saves him. But William Wallace is done for the time being. 
Now, when I saw that clip, I realized that I have seen that look in my kids' eyes, in Lori's eyes. As a matter of fact, I was this summer. It's been two of the hardest. No, no. It has been the two hardest years of ministry in my entire life through COVID, through the political process in America, through the race debacles in America. As an American pastor, there's not one thing I could say that would not be controversial. No matter what I say, I had half the church mad. And I'd gotten to the point where I'd had enough. I was done. Get me out of Oak Mountain. Get me out of Birmingham. I'm done. And Laurie and I got away for four weeks. My elders were so, so sensitive and in tune. They said, you just need to get out of here. We'll, we'll pay for it. You just go. And so Laura and I went to Colorado. We went to all the national parks out west. And I was journaling the whole time. And uh, I wrote in my journal, I was done. And then I, I came home, and God had done a work of grace because He exposed me. He said, Bob, this isn't about you being attacked. This is about your response to being attacked. So this is about you repenting even though you're the one being sinned against, you're sinning against me because you're not loving my people. And he had me. I was like, you're right, God. I repent. So then I was home. Lori and I were at a leadership dinner where we have all of our elders and our deacons and our women shepherds and our uh, women's mercy team. And uh, there, so there are about, I don't know, 150 people there. And I share this story. And then I get home, and Laurie greets me at the door. And suddenly I know what she's thinking. I should have known all along. Tears streaming down her face. You shared that with the entire church before you shared that with me. I said, honey, you're so right. I am so sorry. She said, do you have any idea how much that hurts me? She said, it feels like, I know, she said, I know this isn't true, but it feels like you've committed adultery. And I just, I was undone. I'm undone now just telling you the story. And I saw my wife like William Wallace. But praise God, it got me in touch with the emotion of my sin. And it wasn't just repenting rationally anymore. It was, it was repenting with a whole heart. So when you talk about repentance, repenting means getting in touch with how your sin has impacted others. It's not just, oh, God, I repent. No, no, let's... let's, let's, let's Let's meditate and reflect long enough that I understand how my sin impacted others. How has my sin impacted God? You think, well, God's not impacted. Oh, really? Then why does it say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit? Okay? Our sin impacts God. He doesn't, he doesn't turn His back on us he doesn't fold his arms and tap his foot like I've showed you. But, but don't think for a moment God is not impacted. I mean, 
when your own children sin, when they disobey, when they rebel, does it hurt you? Of course it does. Do you love them any less? Absolutely not. So why would we think when God says constantly, when Jesus says when He's alive on earth, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, if you being evil, yes, if, if our hearts are wounded when our children rebel, how much more is God's heart? And so how does your sin affect those you love? How does your sin affect God? How does your sin affect you? Folks, you know there's no such thing as a private sin. There's no such thing as a private sin. Every sin we commit affects us and others. When, when we engage in what we think is private sin, part of our hearts are shut down, and therefore we have less to offer those we love. So every sin. So what I'm saying is if you take time to reflect on the impact of our sin, it helps us be more wholehearted in our repentance. So, repent more, repent increasingly, repent wholeheartedly, repent hopefully. <laughs> Judas never repented because he was hopeless. Judas was filled with regret and he was filled with remorse. Don't ever confuse rep regret and remorse with repentance. Okay? Repentance is not regret, and repentance is not remorse. Repentance is acknowledging sin before a holy God, repenting wholeheartedly, but repenting with hopefulness. Contrast Peter's repentance with Judas's remorse. So when you're repenting, are you, are you regretting that you were caught? Are you remorseful about the consequences? Or are you repenting before God? See the difference there? We repent increasingly. We repent wholeheartedly. We repent hopefully. And then we repent expectantly. Dan read at the end of 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11, uh, the fruit of repentance that is produced supernaturally as we repent now, just to show again the supernatural Christian life begins with repentance. We all know 1 John 1, 9, or many of us do, it was one of the first verses I memorized as a brand new Christian. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. I remember that. And I memorized the whole verse, but do you remember what comes after that? To forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness cleanse, supernatural cleanse. As we confess our sin, as we go to God like Israel went, I've been bitten afresh, I have sinned. God not only gives us a fresh experience of His forgiveness, He also supernaturally cleanses us. The look to Christ activates, releases real supernatural power as we're engaging in repentance so that God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Okay, and then I only have a few minutes to hit uh, the, the affirmation step of belief. And what I want to do here is bring us back to the promise of faith in the Christian life. Okay, it is faith in Christ that activates the power of God. Okay, Jesus in John 6, 29 is talking to the Jews. The Jews ask Him a question, what one thing must we do to do the work of God? You talk about salivating at the mouth. Jesus here has been asked the greatest question of all time. How He answers this sets the course for His entire ministry. Think about it. Jesus, the Son of God, is asked, what one thing do we need to do? Think, on your deathbed, you, you have one thing to say. What's it going to be? That's, that's basically what Jesus has been asked. And what does He say? The single work of God is this, that you believe. 
in the one whom he has sent. Not just believe for conversion, but believe for transformation. It's the one thing. The one thing God calls us to is trust, continual trust in Jesus Christ. And I ask people all the time, what does believing the gospel, how does it apply to your life today? You ought to see people, their heads explode. Well, I trusted Christ for my conversion. I've trusted in the blood of Christ. I'm going to heaven. I know. What else? And they look at me like I've just grown four ears. They have no idea how to answer. How would you answer it? What does it mean to believe the gospel today? I'm not talking about your conversion. What does it mean to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to hope in the power of the cross today? Well, I've given you the answer now. I, I hope you're going back to Numbers 21. I hope you're acknowledging your sin, seeing your need for a fresh work of supernatural grace, and believing the gospel has to do with, first of all, your sin being covered, your justified standing and your adopted status. 15, I think, 68, the Heidelberg Catechism. By the way, just to tell on us Presbyterians here, I'm going to make fun of us. The Westminster Standards are what we use, right? The Westminster, you have the 39 articles. We have the, the Westminster Shorter, Larger Catechism, Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Standards have been called the head of the Reformation, the head, the mind, the intellect. That's why Presbyterians are often brains on a stick. Don't worry, Anglicans are probably not far behind. But you know what's called the heart of the Reformation? The Heidelberg. You, you want to you have theology get warm and beautiful and impact your soul? Read and learn the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism, question 60. By the way, you know the, the catechisms were, were how discipleship occurred during the Reformation. You, it was questions and answers, and you, you, you taught children or you taught new converts about their faith with questions and answers. And you know what the Heidelberg Catechism question 60 is? How are you right with God? Answer, even though the Scriptures accuse me of all sin, and even, even though as a Christian I am still inclined toward all evil, yet without deserving it at all, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor even ever been a sinner. And as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need do is embrace this with a believing heart. <laughs> I mean, I just weep. It doesn't get any better than that, folks. Your justified standing is a gift that Christ gives us through union with Christ. Okay, everybody's eyes on me. This booklet right here represents all of my sin, all these marks, my darkness, my brokenness. This booklet is all of Christ's righteousness, all that He's done, all His obedience, and also it is a record of His finished work on the cross, all His sufferings and death, His separation from God. The Bible says that when we're converted, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. So when God sees me, what does He see? He sees Christ's life. He sees Christ's obedience. And when we repent, this is what we need to go back to, our union with Christ. 
We've been baptized into Christ. If you know Christ, every one of us. So let's go back to the, to the verse that, uh, can we put it on our screen, Zephaniah 3.17? Okay, pop quiz. Question number one. When do you think this verse is true of you? The Lord your God is with you. He's a mighty warrior who saves you. This is where it gets hard. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. That means he'll no longer be angry with you. But he will rejoice over you with singing. When is that true of you? Question number two. When is it not true of you? And don't give me your Sunday school answer. I'm talking about your, your fundamental, functional belief system. I don't, I don't want your adopted, theologically precise belief system. I hope you get this one right as far as your theologically precise belief system. I don't care about that right now. I mean, I do, but I don't. What I'm after is what is your functional belief system? How do you feel? When do you feel this is no longer true of you? Okay, now, if there is ever a moment you feel this is not true of you, then you have embraced a paradigm where it can never be true of you in your paradigm. Okay, you with me? So what I'm saying is if you're saying there's ever a moment this can't be true, what you're saying is the truth of this in your experience depends upon your performance. Well, I'm here to tell you that if it depends at all on your performance, you're sunk. If this depends in any way on your obedience, then you're done. Because you never love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you never, never love your neighbor as yourself. Not the way God requires. So if you think Zephaniah 3.17's truth is dependent on your performance, you're done. You're toast. Zephaniah 3.17 is true for one reason. Your union with Christ. Because of Christ's finished work, this is always true of you if you know Jesus. You think that's too good to be true. That's why it's called the good news, folks. i never forget, we taught this in our newcomer group, our guest group on Sunday nights. Uh, and this, this gal that had come from a certain church background that emphasized performance all the time, she just started weeping. And I said, why are you crying? She said, this just seems too good to be true. I've never heard this in my entire life. And I said, that's why it's called the good news. So you affirm your justified standing. You affirm your adopted status. John 17, 23, we're told Jesus prays, God, help them to know that you love them just as much as you love me. Do you believe that? Can I just be honest? I struggle to believe that. I struggle to believe that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. But that's only because I'm looking at myself apart from my union with Christ. If I've been united with Christ in his death and in his life, then God grants and credits to me the perfect righteousness, satisfaction, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned or been a sinner. In other words, God looks at me in Christ as if I'd never sinned, as if I'd never even been a sinner. Now look, this isn't some newfangled Christian grace liberalism here. This is 1548, or maybe it's 1648. Anyway, it's a long time ago, right? And this is, this is in the heart of Reformation theology. Okay, I'm going to close with, uh, with a fun clip. Just goes to show you can find the gospel anywhere. I'm going to close with a clip from, uh, from Indiana Jones um, <clears throat> and uh, The Last Crusade. Are you familiar with the Indiana Jones movies? So in the first one, they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant, right? Because if the Nazis get it, the power of God will be on their side, so they thought. And then in, in The Last Crusade, Sean Connery is in it as Indy's dad. And what they're looking for is the Holy Grail. 
And the whole idea is that if you drink from the Holy Grail, you experience healing. Now, what's interesting is Jesus actually is that, right? Numbers 21, you drink of Christ by faith. As you drink of Christ, who is, in a sense, the Holy Grail, to use the film clip, we do experience supernatural healing toward wholeness. So, in order to motivate Indy, they shoot Sean Connery. He's got a fatal wound. So, now Indy has to find the Holy Grail. Now, to guide him, he has a book. Just like we have a Bible, Indy has a book to lead him to the source of healing. Just like we have a book that leads us to the gospel over and over and over. And then, I want you to notice the place that repentance has. You'll see the first two steps of the waltz here. You'll see repentance, and you'll see faith. Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, so it is, it is as we believe the gospel that we experience the power of God. So let me, let me apply it to now our justification and adoption. When you choose to believe the gospel is true for you, when you least feel you deserve to believe it, that is the moment that supernatural transforming power is released from heaven. Can I say it again? When you choose to believe the gospel is true of you, your justified standing, your adopted status, when you least feel you deserve to believe it's true, that is precisely the moment when supernatural transforming power is released. See, if grace is just a concept, then it is easily abused. But if grace is actually the supernatural power of God, believing it won't lead to abuse. Believing it will lead to transformation. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the attentiveness of this group. And God, we pray that none of this would be just lyrics, but it would truly be the music of the gospel. And help us to dance. In Jesus' name, amen.